Honesty faces a, a real penalty in society. I had a student once, you know, told me, said, Tola, the reason people don't like you is because you're honest. And I spoke with a bunch of, you know, my seniors within the last week about do not ever encourage people, incentivize people to be less than honest with you because you just will make worse decisions. Hey everybody, this is Tiffany Daniel Elliott and I'm here with Connor Walden. And we had this awesome opportunity. I'm very excited about this next episode. We finally got to interview Tola Adewalligan, who I've known for a long time and has had a huge influence in my life. I've learned so many things about him, about why having conversations are important, how to learn, why it's important to risk and be vulnerable and make mistakes and say stupid things so that you can learn. And it was just a really great conversation with him and I'm excited to share it with y'all. Yeah, I've heard so much about Tola from you, Elle, and he did not disappoint. Uh, I was very excited about this conversation. This is my first time talking with him, and I hope you all enjoy our conversation with Tola. Thanks for joining us, Tola. Um, do you just want to say like, well, let me say this. Tell me if you'll just say your name, who you are, literally anything you want to say, and then how you know me. My name is Tola Adewaligan. I'm a teacher in the Seattle area, and I know you from college. We lived in the same dorm your freshman year, which was my junior year. So we, we, we like, I think we were pretty close or got to know each other then. And then there were years where here and there we would keep in touch, but I hadn't seen her talk to you in years. And I lived in Seattle. This was several years ago. I'm awful with timing. And then all of a sudden I heard a doorbell ring, my doorbell ring. And I opened the door and there is Tola standing at my door. And I had no idea that he was in Seattle. So what have you been doing in Seattle since? How long have you been here? Three and a half years. So I've been here for three and a half years. And here is where I started a new career. And my new okay. career is that of a teacher. I teach high school uh, in Seattle. I've taught at three different schools in this region. Uh, and prior to that, I spent most of my career as a public sector financial analyst. You know, we have this organization, this podcast is called Interloper, and it's about someone who is in a place that doesn't belong. Um, and it's a little more complicated than that. But I, I'm curious how often you feel like you don't belong and my guess is that your answer is going to be pretty often. And in those situations, why do you choose to stay and stay engaged in a place where you're often told you don't belong or you're treated like you don't belong? I rarely feel like I belong. I feel like I don't belong so frequently that that is my now my original position. I expect not to belong. Why do you feel like you don't belong so often? What is it about you that makes you feel like you don't belong or makes it not makes you feel like you don't belong, but very legitimately what puts you out on the edge of belonging? I struggle to fully answer the question. I'm odd. Like I'm an odd person, you know, at every school I've worked at, I've always worn a shirt, a tie, pants, you know, dress pants, you know, dress shoes. I walk differently. Part of that is me being from the East coast. I don't like chit chat. 
So I don't like idle conversation. Oh, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Oh, you know, did you see the Seahawks yesterday? I'm not that guy. If you want to talk about something real, I'm that guy. Like, let's talk about something real. You know, I just, you know, right before I got here, I got an, uh, an email from a student who wants to talk about the income tax of Seattle and wants to present it to my students. Okay, I'll talk about that. Like, so that's part of it. So I'm not kind of this kind of conversational person that kind of just wants to basically exchange pleasantries back and forth. I think that's one thing that makes me odd. I think my way of looking at the world is, is relatively odd. I think one thing that really makes me odd is that I'm very honest. Honesty faces a, a real penalty in society. I had a student once, you know, told me, said, Tola, the reason people don't like you is because you're honest. And I spoke with a bunch of, you know, my seniors within the last week about do not ever encourage people, incentivize people to be less than honest with you because you just will make worse decisions. That's actually something we were talking about as interlopers. That is actually one of the qualities of being an interloper is just truly being yourself and being honest with who you are, no matter where you are. But so my one question I had, I had two, I had two questions, but the first one is we're, we're just starting this podcast and we actually hope to have real honest conversations with guests, with one another. And I was curious, what is your advice for us moving forward? How do you have an honest conversation? What would be your advice? Man, it is so difficult to do in this space. One of the things is, it's, at this point, it's going to be the human selection. You need to find people really willing to do it. Mm-hmm. Really willing to do it. And you need to find a screening tool. Find a mm-hmm. difficult question to ask and, and see how they respond. And if their response, you can tell if someone has a genuine response. Yeah. And then if you use a handful of these screening tools, then you'll find the right people. I think you can find the right people through that. That's the best I have. And then my, actually my second question is, what is your advice for our audience? Like how, how would you encourage someone to listen to our podcast in order to get the most out of it in order oh, so to like, yeah. Like how do you, what's, what, is, what's your advice, not only for how to have honest conversations, but what's your advice for how to listen in a way that you're willing to listen to things that are uncomfortable. Get out of your echo chamber, social media, by definition, it's based on algorithms and it's meant to shoot back information at you that you've shot out to it. You need to get out of it. You absolutely need to get out of it. People's echo chamber basically calcifies their kind of opinions and they become less intellectually flexible and more certain of their positions when their certainty is far from it. And they need to become open to different ideas. In Seattle, that's tough. In Seattle, that's tough. But if if a lot of your audience is in Seattle, I ask them to do this. Look, you guys are the whitest large city in America. You're one of the richest large cities in America. Your low income percentage of your your public schools is 33%. 
If you go to a place like Detroit, it's going to be 80s, Baltimore 80s. But yeah, Boston 60s or 70s, San Francisco 50, San Jose 50, you're a third. That's less than the American average and it's less than some states overall. It's really easy to come up with ideas and solutions in places that are very rich, very white. It, you're already in an echo chamber. Exit it. Tola has been pretty significant in my life because we met when we were, I was 17. And one of the things that I just so distinctly remember about the way, and I've seen you since then talk this way to so many people is you just asked hard questions and you never let me get away with anything. Like, I just remember, like I would say something and you would say, well, why do you believe that? And it, up until that point, I was 17. I hadn't really examined my beliefs. You know, I was still a teenager and I would just be like, well, this is what I believe. And you're like, but why? And you never let me get away with saying something I believed without explaining why I believed it and where that came from. And in that, it made me really kind of doubt a lot of, of things that I thought I believed, kind of uncover why I believed what I believed, and then how that impacted my life. And so that was pretty significant during that time in my life. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you is about language. First of all, what do you think about freedom of speech? And then second of all, when does that kind of when does that become hate speech or what do you even think about hate speech? Okay. Well, let me ask the answer the freedom of speech question. Okay. I think freedom of speech is one of the American concepts that America has done among the best with. So in the United States, there are very few limits to freedom of speech and that includes hate speech. So, for example, a, I'm, I'm black, you know, I'm a black person. If someone on the street called me every bad name in the book, including the N-word, that is not in and of itself illegal. That is considered legal speech in this country, and I think it's a good thing. I think it's better to have a wider range of things that are allowable than a narrower range because it allows people to have intellectual dialogue. Yes, it also allows people to have ridiculous dialogue, but I'm much more comfortable with the government just being like, okay, it's all okay, than the government calling balls and strikes with speech. I think it gets into a place where you, you worry about the government overstepping. So I think there's a difference between like this great allowance that you're talking about, we have the freedom to say everything, and then there was actual hate speech um, which has its own cost, but then there's that place in the middle, which is kind of like asking emotional labor. Like I'm going to use myself as an example. And I think back to some of the stuff that I said when I was 17 and I was working through things and trying to understand things. And I don't think that I ever went into the area of hate speech or anywhere near it, but I did ask emotional labor, like from you as an example, you're working through this stuff with me, which was hugely generative. I learned so much, but it had to have come at a cost from you. So what do you think about that area of like, we're allowing for everything, but there is a cost to certain people with language that doesn't cost other people as much. So I can speak to that as a teacher and I could speak to okay. that as, you know, when I knew you, when we first met as a teacher, I consider it part of my job. Okay. I, I, I consider it part of my job to allow kids to make mistakes. I had a student who said, 
uh, he didn't want to vote for, I think it was Andrew Yang. Is that his name? Yeah, Andrew Yang. And he's like, because he's Chinese. And the guy says, yeah. And I'm just like, and it was just him and I. I'm like, that's racist. He's like, no, it's not. And we had this conversation back and forth where he's basically attaching qualifications to someone's race for a job. But he was only comfortable enough having this conversation with me because he knew I wasn't going to come after him afterwards. He knew I wasn't going to be like, you know, you're this awful person, blah, 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 blah. And it was easy. And, you know, he actually comes back two days later, apologized to me and said, you know what? That was racist. Thank you for having this conversation with me. And that is huge. That's the only way we can have these conversations. If you spend so much of your time restricting your speech in conversations, you're just not going to work through things because you don't have anyone to work through them with except for the Internet. <laughs> yeah. And that does not go good. That doesn't go that I've seen that and I, it doesn't and it worries me more than just about anything. Right. So the, you're, you're taking that position as an educator, which I agree with. I think that that is I mean, I've seen this with your kids when I've gone into your classroom. I've seen kids and I, I hope this is OK to say, but I've seen kids that have told me come up to me and said, I'm like the only conservative kid I know in this school. And Tola is like the safest place for me to, to talk. And I'm sitting there going like, I know that. Tola isn't creating a sanctuary for conservatives. He's creating a safe place where you can say anything you want to say, whether you believe far right, far left, anywhere in between. And I, I've witnessed that, the power and the impact of that on these kids, where they feel like they're allowed to say whatever they want with you and work through it. Yeah, that is an explicit goal of mine, you know, and it takes a while to nurture and different schools do it in different ways based on the kind of the demographics and the culture of the, of the school building. But it is an explicit goal of mine. And one of the reasons it's an explicit goal is because I think it's educationally useful. There is a, there's a usefulness to the interchange of ideas. I think that in and of itself is useful. But I also worry about the other side. Imagine okay. if you believe something and everyone is telling you you're not allowed to talk about it. Yeah. And, and you still believe it and there's no checks and balances because nobody's challenging exactly. you. Exactly. It allows you to right. develop any idea you want without mm -hmm. any sort of intellectual justification for that idea. And what I worry about more than anything is the internet rabbit hole. Opening it up YouTube, yeah. typing something in, getting echo chamber after echo chamber after echo chamber. And if I wanted to, I can imagine creating a YouTube channel for 15-year-old boys that aren't allowed to say things in class. Like, it's not hard to create. I bet yeah. you I bet you your teacher won't allow you to say this. Well, you can talk about that here. Here's free speech zone. And you'll be able to pull these kids in. And then you'll start saying things. And hmm. none of those things get checked. And I've had kids come to me with things. And I'm like, okay, let's look into it. I've had a kid says... Tola, we shouldn't call it gun violence because it's not guns committing the violence. It's humans. So let's call it human violence. So I literally sat down with him and said, okay, let's th think about a world or an America where we record that as human violence. How will our gun stats change? We won't have any. <laughs> we wouldn't have any gun stats. 
So I couldn't yeah. even say there was this many gun deaths in America because they're all record recorded as human deaths. And we don't record statistically like guinea pig deaths. So his allowance of going through that reasoning, been like, okay, we should call it gun deaths because that's what it is, because the human part is implied. And then we continue and continue over the course of several months discussing these things. And he knows that he can come and talk to me and I'm not going to be like, I'm not going to shut him down. I'm going to reason with him, send him data and have a conversation. Okay. So I love what you're, what I'm hearing you say is in the educational environment, it's important for us to be able to say whatever we need to say so that it, in one hand can expose what we actually believe. So there's an opportunity to learn and grow. Now take that same situation, put it outside of the education environment where you're a teacher and you have students. How, how do you handle this in your relationships? Like you can talk about when we were younger or even just now with your relationships, is it a different cost for you? Do you have a different idea of whether or not you're willing to have these conversations or how do you hold that differently outside the classroom? Historically, I have never held any difference, but there is one circumstance that changed it. George, okay. George Floyd. Okay. That one was intense. Because yeah. my reputation as a person that you can talk to anyone and about anything with, while also being a teacher, basically mm. put on an incredible load on me at a single time. And I was getting, you know, contacts from former students, from current students. Well, I was, you know, the corona had already started. So I started doing Zoom sessions yeah. with students and on and on and on. Then people were, you know, chatting with me and it became a lot. Uh, and that time specifically was a time when I was like, this is too much. This is too much. Was that just a single time or do you feel like that changed the way you think about it from here on out? Single time. I seem to have developed a pretty kind of robust tolerance for it. And mm -hmm. it's probably a kind of a lifelong kind of tolerance exposure. And it was, that was the one time where my cup overfilled. I couldn't take yeah. that much. And oddly enough, the only reason I know I hit that is a student emailed me and she asked, how are you doing? How are you doing? Hmm. And this student emails me pretty frequently and you know, we exchange stuff. And it's really quick back and forth, you know, five lines. And I just read it and forgot about it and then went back to it a week later. And I said, I know I'm not doing well because it took me a week to respond to you. Mm -hmm. And that's what did it. That's what did it. And then I knew I had to kind of slow down, start thinking and be like, okay, what is my place as a black male teacher in this world in current America. Black male teachers are only 2% of all educators. Hmm. Why do you think that is? My guess is that there's two things that are going on. One is that if you're black and you become educated, there is a greater need to earn money and teachers just don't earn that much. So that's the gotcha. initial kind of shift that creates an incentive to pursue a profession other than teaching. And then the second thing, and I'm not a person who started teaching right out of college. The second adjustment is 
the opportunity cost to become a teacher after you've done something else is great. So I had to go back to school, you know, for, you know, basically two years, paying tuition, making no income, and then student teach. And that, and the, and those two shifts discourage certain populations from becoming teachers. And I think you see the crux of that within black males in the education industry. But when I became a teacher, I knew this data. Like, I was like, yeah, I know I'm going to be rare. I know that that is fine. And then on top of that, I've traditionally taught social studies, you know, the subject mm-hmm. where you will talk about race more than any other. So I, I prepped myself for the heavy lifting and I thought I was ready. But the George Floyd protests was at a level that I could not, I couldn't plan for. I just couldn't. Um, I want to talk to you more in a minute about more about that, about what it's like to be specifically in Seattle. But before we do that, I just want to ask you a question about your students and as long, you know, you haven't been a teacher for a really a, a long time, but you've been in different areas around Seattle. And so one of the things I want to ask you about, we, you know, we've talked about, and you hear this term cancel culture talked about, especially a lot more recently, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little about what you have noticed from your students or even just people in your life about the effect of cancel culture on the way they talk or the way that they exist in education, but also on the flip side, accountability, because there, there's two sides of this coin. And maybe maybe I should just say there are two points on a spectrum of being held accountable. And then also this idea of being afraid to say something because you might get canceled. So how have those two things affected education and your students? It's, it's affected different spaces differently. Okay. So the one thing that I have seen, that, which is the largest negative is Classroom conversations are less robust. Classroom. Can you define what that means? People don't want to say things that might get, they might face a social backlash with. I don't want someone to go on some sort of social media site saying such and such said something. So the exchange of ideas, which is what like school is about. (laughs) That's how school is done well, (laughs) is an interchange of ideas. It's just narrower. Instead of it being this wide with my arms stretched out, it's this wide with my arms pulled in. And every few weeks, I get an email from a student who said, oh, I really like that, such and such. Uh, And some students have just been clear, till I'm just not going to say any of this stuff in in open. So we, we meet after class in Zoom and have a more real conversation. And then we go out to the big one, we have a less real conversation. And you're like, this is not good. This is not good. As for the accountability side, for for high school kids, honestly, I don't want any. Like You don't want any what? I, I, I don't want to get into a world where spending a lot of time trying to hold kids accountable for what they say. And not because they shouldn't be held accountable, but because every time the accountability seems to be so much focused on punitive Hmm. and shame. Okay. 
Yeah. So like, that's not the way that you're going. You, you need to educate. And there's some people who are doing things like that. There are some spaces in education where I see people doing things like that, where if someone threw out something very offensive and you sometimes see this, if you play like an online game and mm -hmm. somebody would use, you know, you put in your name, you might put in, you know, you might put in Jeremy or you might put in, you know, Steven or whatever. Someone will use weird language to suggest a racial slur. Those are the types of oh. things that you're like, okay, that needs to be dealt with in some fashion. Mm -hmm. uh, but the fashion it is tough to do. Now, I've seen people at some of the schools I've been do a talking circle where they literally gather the kids in a circle and they have a teacher facilitate a conversation. I think that's useful. Mm, okay. Uh, what I have tended to do myself, and none of this stuff ever happens in my class, is I talk kids one-to-one. -one. And the reason I like yeah. to talk to kids one-to-one -one is because I'm not pulling the power card. I don't want the power of the school. I'm like, look, I'm not writing you up. I'm not doing anything. Let's just have a conversation. Let's just have a conversation. I'm not acting as an authority figure, but a knowledgeable figure that the other person respects. So that respect factor is key. If you're going to talk to a young person about a given topic and they don't respect what you think, you've already lost. How do you think this translates into adults? Man, with adults, it's harder. With adults, it's much harder because with adults, there needs to come some level of accountability. You can't just say whatever and, and not be accountable. That's where the difficulty comes from. There has to be some level of accountability, but that accountability needs to be proportional. There was some young woman who wrote something on Twitter when she was 17 and then was denied a job at, at like Teenage Vogue or something like that. Magazine. Oh, she was there. She stepped down. Yeah, she was one of the, the editors or directors and stepped down because of it. This does not serve anyone well. It doesn't serve anyone well. What it does do is it forces all people who are 17 to go back and to start scrubbing their pages and to be yeah. extraordinarily rigid in conversations. Like, if she did this when she was 17, like, this is the time when you should be able to make such a mistake. Also worth noted is I believe she was a woman of color, too, which was really... I was like, wait, whoa, like taking someone who has gotten this position of power, which has historically been really hard to get into, and then she's forced to step down. Yes, black woman. Mm -hmm. And it, I don't think anyone is better off because of this. Yeah. I, I don't think anyone is better off because of this. Uh, but then there are other examples. You know, as you go up and up and up, you know, as these things become more egregious, then yes, it's legitimate for a person to kind of face a pun punishment. But I think where the problem occurs is when individuals try to make kind of business actions. You said something appropriate. I want you to be kicked off all these platforms. I want your book deal to be pulled, so on and so hmm. forth. And obviously the higher you are, you know, if you're a senator and a president, everything you say should be held accountable. Like that's, that's mm, where you are in yeah. society. But these other people who are just trying to make a living, trying to offer opinions on topics that they might be wrong about, 
or might say something offensive, they should apologize, they should maybe learn something, but they should be able to move on. All right, so I want to flip that a little bit on you because you've talked about how with these high school kids, they should be able to say these things and you're there as an educator, but you're an adult and you're an adult in a system of other adults. And so I'm curious about how I know that you have, you often and sometimes get in trouble for the things that you say. And one of the things that I love and respect about you is that you're not, I don't ever, I don't see you hiding. Maybe you feel like you do. I'd love for you to speak to that, but you say what you're thinking and you say things to these kids often grounded in facts and statistics, but you sometimes get in trouble with the parents and the other administrators questioning why you've said the things that you say. So I wonder if you'd speak a little bit to that. Like if these kids are allowed to say, do you have the same freedom to say what you think in the same way that you're allowing for your kids to have that freedom? I think that my freedom isn't quite as broad. Uh, in part because I'm an adult, I'm an authority figure, and I need to set some sort of rational example. Right. But I do feel the need to pursue intellectual arguments for the purpose of education that might be uncommon within the intellectual space of the atmosphere at which I'm teaching. So often I say things that are grounded in fact that people are like, Tola, are you sure about that? Then I'm like, yes, yes. And then I often introduce data to kind of further that in that discussion. One that I do, I, there's a lot of places that I do this with, and I have, you know, certain advantages. The biggest one is being black. So because I'm black, it's easier for me to talk about a racial issue. So I will talk about a racial issue and give different sorts of perspectives, but one of the things I'm careful to model is talking about issues outside of my personal identity. So hmm. one of the things I talk about relatively frequently is gender issues. Yeah. As a person that's a, a male, I'm like, okay, guys, yeah, I, I understand why you can see comfort from me when talking about racial issues. But then I also talk about gender issues and I'm like, okay, here are some interesting ideas. And over the course of my handful of years teaching, I put together really interesting questions that I pose to kids. And they're almost always grounded in kind of one of three ways. One is a believable hypothetical. So something that isn't true, but it's believable. Two is a real world scenario. And then the third one is very high quality data. Okay, give us an example, something that you you put in front of your kids like this. So the race one, I, I, I do this, I sometimes do this relatively early on. Uh, I'm like, okay, when is it appropriate to hire based on race? And I'm like, okay, if I'm hiring for someone that's a Tuskegee Airman, which is, you know, these pilots in World War II that were all black, you have to hire a black person because of blackness is a qualification. Then I would go, okay, Let's say I was creating a Nigerian restaurant and in my Nigerian restaurant, it's going to be an open kitchen. So you can see the person actually cooking the food. And mm -hmm. I interview two cooks. One is Asian. One is black. The Asian one is definitively better at cooking Nigerian food than the black one. Is it justifiable for me to hire the black one given that 
the cooking and seeing it done is part of the experience. Is this person's race in this specific context a qualification? So now you've seen me go from one end to an, to, and then I push it a little further. Mm. And then I'm like, same thing with haircuts. I gen, when I, you know, I've lived in a lot of cities and I generally look for black people to cut my hair. So basically mm -hmm. I'm using race as a proxy for qualifications. Is that appropriate in that circumstance? If so, why or why not? And those are some like the low level ones I do with race. And we build it up over the course of the class. Thank you yeah. so much for this conversation. It's been really great. It's really thank been you. a pleasure. Yeah, thank right. you, Tola. Bye. Let us know what you think and join the conversation at interloperinterloper.com slash podcast, where you can leave us a comment, ask a question, or tell us what we missed or need to go deeper with. Interloper's vision is putting money into the hands of artists, saying the things we aren't supposed to say. If you'd like to support artists or this podcast, go to interloperinterloper.com slash funders to find out ways you can help increase creativity and conversation. Finally, we release the podcasts, new exhibition series, and more on the 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. So set your calendars and follow us on Instagram at interloper underscore unlicensed to find out what's next. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you find your podcast. Interloper is a project of the Milkshake Club, which is powered by Shenpike. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by Connor Walden and Tiffany Danielle Elliott. The song you heard on the podcast today is Lofi and La Fila de la Totiria by Pan Masur.